hello, everybody, and thank you for attending. This is our second podcast reaching out to experts for help in formulating PPC strategy. Our last interview with Queen's Law Professor Bruce Party on how to best curtail the administrative state was very instructive and could be found both on Rumble and Odyssey. Today, we are joined by Professor Eric Kaufman, who will help us to understand the recent gains of populists, parties, particularly in Europe, and the relationship of these successes to both culture and to immigration. As you can see from the background slide, neither the People's Party, the name the People's Party, nor its characterization as a populist movement is a new development. The first one I could find was over a 100 years old. But the struggle between elitism and populism goes back much further. Our uh, Electoral District Association has formed a working group, including people from Ontario, Alberta, the Maritimes, to work on materials to promote the image of the People's Party of Canada. Several participants have experience in marketing and graphic design. The People's Party itself describes itself as populist. Well, what does that mean? And are there similarities to developments in the U.S. and Europe? And how does all this tie to our EDA's current focus on producing messaging for the topic of mass immigration? Today, we're joined by Eric Kaufman, Professor of Politics at Birkbeck College, University of London in the UK, who will help us to make sense of all of this. At uh, the recent National Conservative Convention in the UK, natcon.uk, Professor Kaufman used the term cultural security. I think this term has headline potential. And I was immediately reminded of an advertisement from the Conservative Party of Canada, from the last election here in Canada, about securing the future. Of course, the, the CPC only meant Canada's economic future. Well, unlike uh, Pierre Polyev, who favors mass immigration, the People's Party is not afraid to take up these more difficult topics. And neither is Professor Kaufman, as his latest book, White Shift, clearly demonstrates. Ladies and gentlemen, it's with great pleasure that our EDA presents to you Professor Eric Kaufman to help guide us through these topics in order to formulate some productive messaging. Okay, Professor Kaufman, are you there? I am. Yeah, thanks. Thanks and a I've lot. Got, I've got the, uh, the settings to uh, all can share. So if you have slides you'd like to uh, use, yeah. you should be able to do that now. Okay. Great, and, and thanks for uh, the invite and for having me. Um, and I'm kind of heartened by uh, such an interesting group. I'm, I'm going to, what I'm going to do, uh, I saw Bruce's talk, and I think he covered off the legal aspects quite well in the administrative state. I'm going to talk a lot about immigration, um, and I'm also going to talk about some of the political science behind populist voting, and then I'll talk a bit about messaging and also a bit on culture wars as well. Uh, so I'm just going to give you, I'm going to show quite a few slides. I'm going to move through them quite quickly, but 
these will be fully available for anybody to, to look at afterwards. And also in the q and I'm happy to elaborate on anything I, I show. So let me just uh, move over here. Um, okay. Can everyone uh, see that all right? We can, yeah. Oh, good. Okay. So um, what I want to do is just sort of begin by talking about immigration because immigration is absolutely central to every successful uh, right of center populist movement in Europe and arguably even beyond that. Um, you know, just to give you a couple of numbers, Sweden Democrats uh, voters, 99% of them said immigration should be reduced. Um, AFD voters in Bavaria in a, in a recent election, 100% agreed with the statement Germany is gradually losing its culture. So, um, immigration is going to be, I think, central to any, uh, national populist or right populist movement in a Western country. Just to sort of show you some of the relationships here in the voting data, this is the Brexit vote, and the, the, the scale along the bottom says allow more immigrants. Zero is essentially no immigration. Ten is much more immigration. And this is the predicted probability of voting to leave the European Union. If you want uh, essentially zero immigration, if you take UK voters, that's uh, about an 8 out of 10 chance of um, wanting to leave the EU, the Brexit referendum, whereas if you're pro-immigration down here, it's almost zero. The different bands here, different income levels. Now, yes, poorer people uh, here in blue are a little more likely than the richest people in yellow to have voted to leave, but it's only about 10 points compared to 80 points difference along the immigration spectrum. That's much more important than anything economic. So one of the messages is it's not the economy stupid when it comes to national populist voting. It's even more extreme when we look at white Trump voters. Between those who want immigration reduced a lot, it's about an 85% chance of voting Trump. And white uh, American voters who want a lot more immigration, it's only a 1 out of 10 chance. Um, whereas all these income levels make almost no difference. So essentially, this idea that it's about the left behind, the poor, etc., they may be slightly more anti-immigration, but it's not fundamentally about economics. It's about immigration attitudes, which in turn are very much about psychological uh, approaches. Do you see change as loss? Uh, do you see difference as disorder? Uh, and these are very deep psychological impulses, and they populations divide by these psychological impulses. And that's really what we're seeing is it's those who want a more orderly society, who want the past to be more like the present, uh, the present to be more like the past, that are much more likely to be negative on immigration and much more likely to be populist voters. And just to show you how dramatically this has sorted, we've, we've seen a shift from the older left-right economic market versus government redistribution dimension. That's less important, whereas the globalist nationalist, if we want to call it that, uh, cultural, these cultural dimensions are just much more important. So what happens in the U.S., we look at the question of, we look at white Americans wanting less immigration. It's sort of 50 to 60 percent. doesn't matter much if you're blue Democrat or red Republican. We get to 2012 here. This is after the Romney-Obama election. We move into Trump uh, Clinton. Now you see what happens here is suddenly in 2016, uh, partisans are 50 points apart on immigration when they were only like five to 10 points. 
And we're seeing this in country after country. And we'll see this applies in Canada as well. There's been a huge cleaving of the electorate along the immigration dimension. And that's partly because people on the right are sorting into parties that are going to sort of restrict immigration. And it's also because people on the left have become radically pro-immigration, increasing something like 60% of white Democrats say they want immigration increased in America. We've never seen those numbers before. So we're seeing a real um, polarization on that question. It's not as extreme in Britain, but the same pattern occurs. Uh, those voters for the Labour Party, almost 7 in 10 in 2010, wanted less immigration. That's down to actually under 5 in 10 today. So there's been liberalism on the immigration question for Labour Party voters, but nothing for Conservative voters. So that's now a 40-point gap when it was just a 20-point gap in 2010. So it's a, it's a similar trend to the U.S. Now, here's Canada on an ECOS question that says, uh, too, uh, too many members of visible minorities amongst the immigrants coming to Canada. Uh, if you look at liberal and conservative opinion on that, 15 points apart in two, or, or actually only 13 points apart as recently as 2013. By 2019, that's over 50 points. And it's a very, so between 2015 and 2019, we have this big change. Um, the anti-immigration, immigration restrictionist voters are moving to the, to the conservatives and the pro-immigration uh, voters are moving towards the liberals, NDP and not only that, perhaps some of them are becoming even more extreme pro-immigration. Um, so we got this massive gap now opening up. This is the best, one of the best questions for parsing the liberal and conservative voter today. Um, and just to show you it on another question, this is, should immigration be decreased? Uh, 2011 and 2015, 40% of conservatives, 25% of liberals. Just a, it's about 15 point difference. We get to 2019 and suddenly two-thirds of conservative voters want less immigration versus only 20% of NDP and liberals, 45 points. So we've gone from 15 points to 45 points in just a few years, uh, a polarization around the immigration issue. And so that's going to be a key issue then. for It's a key issue for understanding why people vote conservative and liberal, but it's increasingly, or it's even more important issue for understanding uh, the PPC vote as well. Um, so we'll just take you up much more recently. I think this was this year or last year poll. Um, the number, this is the plan, 465,000 immigrants in 2023, 500,000 by 2025. Uh, is this too many? 65% of CPC voters compared to only 30% of liberals. Now that 30% number is up a little bit, uh, but you see this big gap. And then PPC is 81%, uh, overwhelming opposition to the levels. Interesting, two other points I'll, I'll make. One is those who put other party, 79% want less immigration. We know, One of the things we know in the populism literature is non-voters or uh, non-voters tend to be aligned in many ways to a culturally conservative message. Uh, so can you reach people who don't normally vote? The Brexit a referendum was very much a story of non-voters turning out and voting to leave the EU. The other interesting thing, we consistently see Green Party voters being more immigration skeptic than NDP or Liberal voters. That's another interesting wrinkle. Um, so I want to talk that now a little bit about the psychological dimensions I just 
um, spoke about this idea of people who see changes, loss and diversity and difference as disorderly. Uh, now, and this is hard, you know, very hardwired and there have been all kinds of psychological experiments I'm happy to talk about. There are, one way of getting at this is what's called values mapping, where we ask about uh, several hundred questions to people and we plot their answers as heat maps. And this is a well-established technique, and this is done by a marketing firm called Cultural Dynamics. Produces three sort of quadrants. This group with the red circle, which are known as the settlers, and that's the target group for most populist parties. And this is the case of the National Front in France, now the RN, Marine Le Pen's party. The voters for Marine Le Pen's party are up in this zone we call the settlers, who uh, again, they want less change. Um, they're more likely to, to seek threats and want security. Um, and so traditional family, uh, punishment of criminals, national security, these somewhat pessimistic traditional national pride. These are the kinds of things that are important to these voters. On the other hand, we have this group called the pioneers who are what we might call he- scoring highly on these kind of care harm dimensions. So caring, justice, these sorts of benevolence, and then on the other hand, uh, also on the equality uh, dimension. And then we have this third group, which are much more about visible success, looking good, hedonism, buzz, etc., impulsive spender. Uh, That's more of an economic right-wing group. Um, That's not so much of a target area for um, the populist right. So I would say we see this, if you look at the map for UKIP voters, UK Independence Party voters, it looks very similar to National Front in terms of the kinds of voters, people who want cultural security um, and see difference as disorderly. Um, now, we can, a lot of the trends that I've looked at in Britain and the US are look quite similar in the Canadian data that I've looked at, which isn't a ton, but I, I've done some work with Canadian data. Uh, so, for example, your immigration attitudes, do you want immigration to be reduced a lot or increased a lot or remain the same? Um, the strongest predictor is your view of, it is Britain a diverse country? Is it a country of immigration? Uh, if you disagree with that assessment or you're cool towards that, that assessment, you're much less likely to want more immigration. If you're very big on that, if you think that's really important to being British, diversity uh, and immigration, then you're going to be massively pro-immigration. Now, also, identification as white, but also with your ethnic group, let's say in Canada, as Irish, as Italian, as German, all of those things are tightly correlated with identifying with your racial group, because all the racial group is, is a kind of pan-ethnic, higher level um, of ethnic group. That also predicts uh, opposition to immigration, and also the view that the country uh, has a long history of dissent from um, uh, ancient ancestors in Britain. Now, if we look at Canada, we're seeing, and this, anything about this two line is statistically significant. We see the same things popping up in Canada, uh, even more so if you are lukewarm or cool on this idea that, um, it's very important that Canada has a tradition of being a diverse country. Uh, that doesn't resonate at all with voters who want less immigration. Uh, also strong ethnic and pan-ethnic or racial identities is less important than this, but it matters. And also the view of does ethnic composition of a country matter at all? Not saying that, you know, you can't be 
equally British or equally Canadian if you aren't a member of the ethnic majority. But just to say this is part of um, this is part of the many symbols, including landscape, that make up a Canadian identity. Um, uh, some polling I did again on a small scale, of maybe about five hundred. Uh, asking people how Canadian they felt when they thought of these symbols. And I'll just sort of, and what we've got is conservative and liberal voters. Um, now, the CBC, it's no surprise that liberal voters are much warmer towards it than conservative voters. It's about a 20-point gap. But actually, across a whole set of these symbols that tap into diversity immigration, you know, multiculturalism, diverse mix of ethnic and racial groups, tradition of being ethnically diverse, tradition of immigration, uh, liberals are at least as as much, uh, you know, at least 20 points, if not more, uh, gung-ho about these, whereas most conservative voters are pretty lukewarm. They're around the 50 or just below on that. Now, interesting here, I threw Don Cherry in um, as a bit of a, a, a test case, but you can see some conservatives are obviously more positive about Don Cherry than liberals, but that gap is smaller than the gap and all these other symbols. Um, so that gives us an insight into uh, the importance of uh, these views about national identity and informing, and about ethnic identity and informing immigration attitudes. Um, I now want to kind of move on to the connection between those immigration attitudes and populist right voting and support, um, which is a very close and important connection. As I, as I mentioned, by the way, you saw in those Trump numbers and Brexit numbers, uh, as, so, as much as an 80 point difference between, uh, the, you know, in likelihood of voting for the populist right based on your immigration attitude. So it's absolutely central. Um, if we look at the, the rise of the populist right in Europe between, let's say the, if we take the mid-1980s here, the purple represents the, the radical right or populist right party family across 14 mainly West European uh, countries. And there was a, a, a sort of a threefold expansion really between the late 80s and early 2000s in support. That's the first increase that we see, again, almost entirely, in fact, entirely on the back of the immigration issue. We then move forward to... 2014-15, which was the second populist moment, what we saw in 2014, the National Front got, the National Front, UKIP and the Danish People's Party got about 30% of the vote in the European elections. European elections don't matter as much, so they're kind of a protest election, but that was a, a barometer of the change that was to occur in subsequent years with Brexit and the rise of the populist right in, in places like France and Italy. Um, so we've had these two two waves, and we can ask what underlies these waves. Well, the first thing we can say is that um, if you look at the highest percentage a populist party, a populist right party has re received in a vote or poll in a particular European country, there's quite a strong correlation with the projected Muslim population in 2030. So the countries that have a higher projected Muslim population, Sweden, France, Switzerland, Britain, Austria, and so on, have a higher share voting for populists than countries such as Iceland, Portugal, Ireland, Spain, Finland, which have a lower. Um, that's not the only thing. There are many, many factors. So, I, But I'm just, part of this is to suggest that this is related to ethnic diversification. This is a paper from the London School of Economics uh, blog, which tracks the um, foreign-born share of the population in European countries over time, and the share voting for 
what are listed here as anti-immigrant, but essentially populist right parties. So there's definitely a relationship cross-sectionally with foreign-born share and ethnic change. Uh, that's sort of very key. And in fact, if you run experiments where you tell voters about what the population will look like in 20, 30, 40 years based on rates of immigration. It really shifts their views on immigration a lot, 20 points or thereabouts. So you have this kind of cultural psychological underpinning to immigration attitudes. Now, the other thing I want to talk about is something a bit more short term, which is when um, there's something called salience, which is so, for example, what occurs with the rise of the populist right in Europe and, and also with Trump is not so much that people who uh, used to be pro-immigration became more anti-immigration. What actually occurs is people who were already restrictionist because there was immigration restriction is tied very much to psychology and ideology. But those people, instead of ranking immigration their number five issue after the economy and healthcare and other things, immigration rises to the top uh, or one of the top issues in their priority list. So that's called issue salience. Uh, and we get a big rise in issue salience when we get a rise in numbers. This is from the Britain and it shows from 1984 through to 2014. In gray, this is the immigration number and it's sort of in sort of around 50,000 or thereabouts up until the new Labour government of Tony Blair comes into office. And then we get a big jump to what goes to 150,000 up to 250. The Conservatives get in, it remains high, goes eventually up to 300,000. And it's now most recently been at 600,000, which is quite astounding for British uh, immigration history and is has become a big issue in Britain. We can talk about that. But as the migration numbers go up, the uh, number of people rating immigration in their top three comes up to 25, 30, 35, 40 percent. And it was in the 30s before the Brexit vote. And one of the things now, this is also mediated by the number of news stories. Number of news stories also reflects this rising concern over immigration as numbers are rising. Um, that is the same in across the EU. So here is Eurostat numbers of immigrants into the, the EU from outside at around 600,000. Uh, in 2013, we then get this increase as we head toward the migrant crisis, 750 up to 2 million or just over 2 million at the peak of the migrant crisis in 2015, and then a drop. And not surprisingly, in the Eurobarometer, the number of people saying immigration is the number one concern um, facing Europe goes up in the same time. 2014 peaks up to 2015 and comes down. It's the same pattern we saw in Britain, where the numbers go up, the concern goes up, and on the back of that concern, populist right numbers move. So these, this salience number really moves the populist right number. There's a study here uh, by Denison and Geddes that found in nine out of 10 European countries, you have a movement of net migration numbers, rising salience and rising support for populist right parties. Um, and so that's a pattern we see in Western Europe. There's different things going on in the East and for different reasons. And I think it's not necessarily relevant to what we'll be talking about. Okay. Now, one of the things, of course, that's starting to happen, perhaps slowly in Canada, is eventually some more stories coming out about um, immigration and not just pro, 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 but perhaps um, recognizing a lot of the downsides, of which there are many, to mass immigration. 
Um, and so there's now polling out saying 61% of Canadians say this number is too high. And, and, and whenever you actually tell people the number, even in Canada, you will get an increase in share opposing this. And one of the things that's interesting in the analysis from Abacus uh, polling of that 61% uh, number who say the target of 500,000 is too high is that 11% of Canadians now in a long list of issues are ranking immigration as a top issue. Uh, and that salience is critical to the rise of the populist right in all Western countries. <clears throat> and so it's an obvious one uh, to go after. So there's much, there's now more negativity on this issue. Now, of course, issue salience is not just about people's experiences. It has to be cued by political elites and by media, uh, which in Canada is more difficult because media is, is essentially almost entirely pro-immigration um, in a way that it is less so in uh, Britain, certainly in the print side and in the U.S. with, with um, Fox News and, and electronic media. But still, uh, the, these, this issue can really rise. In Britain, of course, UKIP and Nigel Farage uh, were able to increase the salience also of this issue. And what's interesting, if you look at the uh, question around if you ask voters who has the best approach to immigration, a lot of them think the conservatives are uh, immigration restrictionist or at least have a good approach. And I think that's partly because there's not, there isn't high voter knowledge around the conservative approach to immigration. There's a lot of voters who I think, and just also based on uh, the earlier numbers we saw where a lot of immigration restrictionist voters have gone over to the conservatives, they still think that the conservatives are going to do something on this issue. Um, the other thing to note is 31% are in the none are unsure. That's a pattern we also see in other countries. Non-voters, those who say none of the above, those people tend to be very amenable to uh, immigration restriction and uh, anti-immigration populism as well. So these are both two kind of target zones, perhaps for the PPC, around this issue. Um, I want to say something, too, about this theme of anti-racist norms and immigration attitudes. And in all countries in the West, there's an interplay between these things, uh, particularly voting for populist parties that politicize immigration. Now, there is, there's always this sort of struggle to, you know, the, the uh, mainstream and progressive media will try and paint populist parties with the racism brush. And parties, I would say the trend has been over time for populist parties to be able to wear that down and, evac and and the more people vote for populist parties, the more acceptable it becomes to vote for them. And you get a ratcheting effect. So we're now in the point at the point where uh, Marine Le Pen is looking like she's ahead in the next pres French presidential election and got in the last runoff sort of 40, 41 or 43% of French voters to vote for her. I mean, this is really quite a change. Austria, it's almost 50%. Uh, and that's taken a while. So when the National Front won 18% of the vote in 2000, or was it 2002, uh, there were a million people out on the streets, calls to boycott across the EU, and it was just a huge outpouring of, of shock at 18%, and they got 43% most recently, and not a murmur. So it takes time, but these norms can wear down, and they're parties that aren't, you know, don't spring from clearly racist uh, street movements have an advantage. So the Swiss People's Party or UKIP, they started out as more of a uh, libertarian parties and they evolved to become, or the AFD, they evolved to become more um, immigration restrictionist. 
Um, what I would say is that Canada is not that different in terms of its uh, anti-racist norms, at least in the population, from other countries in the West. I mean, if you look at this phrasing, a white Canadian uh, who identifies with her group and its history supports a proposal to reduce immigration. Her motivation is to maintain her group's share of the population. Is this person one just acting in a racial self-interest, which is not racist. So this is an idea of attachment to group, to looking out for the group, just in the same way as somebody who might want more immigration to increase the share of their group in the population would be, or two, being racist. In Canada, it's about two people answering just acting in racial self-interest versus one being racist on this country, uh, on this question. And that's pretty much in line with many other Western countries um, and this is just to say, therefore, that the assumption that most Canadians um, would view a statement like this as racist is, is actually completely incorrect. However, and I've done work on this in the U.S., if you take highly educated liberal Democrats, it's like 90, 90 plus percent thinks the person's racist. If you take sort of less than university Trump voters, it's like 5%, or, or Brexit voters, it's like zero. So we have a inflated perception of what racism is and those who have a more um who don't see this that way uh, and, and we can see the same thing when we ask about the people's party of canada something like 55 percent of liberal ndp and green voters say oh we just like the ppc they're a racist party uh, now of course they would probably say the same about the conservative party but still i think there's there's a sense in which they're buying into this alarmist rhetoric um, from the Canadian media and this broad brushed, heavily uh, inflated definition of the word racism. Um, when, whereas amongst conservative voters, there's only 15% buying into this woke narrative. Um, and in fact, there's a significant number of conservative voters who say, I support them, but it's more important to get Trudeau out. And I think that's tells you a lot about where the dynamics that are going on now is because of Trudeau and the need to get him out because voters aren't yet aware of what the Conservatives stand for. Um, there isn't yet the discontent with the Conservatives, which is what drives support for a populist party like the PPC or UKIP. Um, just a, a last few slides around messaging, and I would say, or a, a couple of slides. One is that um, it's important, I think, in messaging to um, try and make the argument that, you know, you don't want to have to defend against this racism charge, but you want to say things like Canadians of all backgrounds, diverse backgrounds, want less immigration, which is true in the surveys. You see no differences uh, on these immigration questions between whites and non-whites, uh, including, by the way, on the question about too many visible minorities coming in the immigration flow. Um, if anything, non-whites are slightly more likely to agree with that statement than whites. But you want to put a series of arguments forward about less immigration, but wrap it up in this unifying thing, like it's all Canadians um, uh, are, are opposed to this. And I think that would be a powerful message. So you point out the, the problems and then you end with this idea of, um, you know, this is, this is something everybody wants. Uh, I'll say something a little more about cultural wars and national identity. I think there's a real opportunity for the right in Canada to own Canadian national identity now that that's been trashed by the Liberal Party um, and to act as the defender of 
Canadian identity, and, and by Canadian identity, I'm I'm talking about uh, what we might what we scholars of nationalism call everyday nationalism, things like landscape, sports, uh, climate, um, history, all these things which are not part of the official narrative of Canada as, as some kind of you know multicultural uh, 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 mass immigration woke society, but but the sort of everyday understanding most Canadians have. So tapping into that, I think, would be important. Um, and just to give you a sense of how powerful this is, um, if we take a, a question like, do you agree that um, schools should teach students that that the U.S. was built on stolen land, the houses they live in are built on stolen land, and so forth, um, what you see is Republicans are not only against this, but they are strongly, 90% of Republicans strongly oppose this. Whereas amongst Democrats, only 28% are strongly in favor and they're split. And these culture war questions do this. They fragment the left, strongly mobilize the right. And of the two aspects of the culture war, you see it similarly in Britain with teach that Britain is a racist country in schools. The right is much more united, strongly against, almost seven in 10, strongly against amongst conservative and Brexit party voters, the left is fragmented into many different pieces on this issue. Um, I would say that the issues around critical race theory, trashing of, of the country's history, calling the country genocidal, all this sort of stuff that the liberals have been engaging in, that issue is the most powerful culture war issue. The cancel culture, freedom of speech, liberty issue is less powerful. Uh, and I also, I, this is kind of the final point I want to make, is that we've got the we have this sort of national heritage, uh, national identity, defense of culture prong, kind of call it critical race theory. And then we have the cancel culture, defense of freedom of speech prong. And of the two, when it comes to mobilizing right of center voters, it's the first one that is stronger. That's, that's the only thing that I will mention right now about the culture war. Um, so defending Canada against this kind of thing toppling of John A. Macdonald, burning churches, that notion of standing for Canada, and then wrapping it up with let's unite, not divide people. So you're accusing the other side of being divisive. You're going to be uniting around not a perfect history, but a proud history, honoring the memory of past Canadians. I think that kind of traditional appeal will have a lot of purchase. Um, in terms of anti-wokeism, I would say you want to unmask the velvet glove. You want to pull away, pull off the euphemisms, the nice sounding diversity, inclusion, equity. You want to try and cut through that. Here in Britain, we had the case of a, a transgender rapist. The picture just says a thousand words. This is somebody who's going to go to a, a women's prison, right? So that just cuts right through all the nonsense about gender affirming, toleration, uh, being nice. Similarly, I think words like saying no to anti-white racism, anti-female sexism, and, or sorry, anti-female gender ideology, anti-male sexism in government schools and organizations. And yes, so you end positively with colorblind justice, equal opportunity. That's that unifying message. Um, and just to, to, to sort of wrap up then, in terms of the PPC, um, you've got two sets of issues, one set which I'll call national conservative and the other libertarian populist. And in Britain, with 10,000 sample polling recently, one of the things that really jumps out is that these libertarian issues are much weaker uh, in the electorate. So lockdown, anti-green, these are issues that for, even for conservative voters, 
they're a wash or in some cases are negative and for non-conservative voters are very negative. Whereas the national conservative issues, monarchy, immigration, not, you know, defensive gender norms, not teaching that the country's racist, you know, those are much stronger issues. And I would say the lesson of certainly populist right voting in, in the U.S. and uh, Western Europe is that these issues around defense, cultural security, defense of the nation, defense of national memory, um, defense of the border, all of that is is much more powerful. So the kind of security is more powerful than uh, the freedom issues. It's not to say the freedom issues don't matter, but certainly with the pandemic in the rearview mirror, I don't think, I think that's not an issue that um, should be front and center in the appeals going forward. Whereas immigration uh, and uh, attacks on, on gender norms, for example, teaching kids that the country is, is, is shameful. All of that should be in the crosshairs. Um, and, and the research that's been done on, say, Trump voters show, you know, on a left-right dimension. Uh, this is the economic left-right dimension. Trump voters are in the center, as many of them are left of center as right of center on these issues, but they're almost all culturally conservative. Um, Britain, same thing. Uh, if anything, conservative voters are a bit left of center. UKIP and Leave uh, voters are even more left of center on economics, but they're uh, culturally conservative. Um, and it's that cultural conservatism that that's where the votes are, uh, not the economic uh, right, which is very, very small. In Britain, only 7% of voters support the idea of lowering taxes and reducing public services. That's a 7% position. Immigration is sort of, you know, 60s or 70s. Last point really is that uh, just to say support for populist right voters, uh, parties is quite volatile. Um, that's just, we see this across the EU. That's because it's tied to, to leader images. Um, and so it bounces around. But what I would say is that a lot of parties start in single digits over a few election cycles like UKIP, and then they'll have their breakthrough. Um, and once they break through, it tends to be a sort of self-perpetuating cycle. Uh, I don't think we're going to see the Front National. Uh, you know, the potential in France, Austria now is uh, very high for these parties. Um, and I think that to some degree can happen uh, in Canada. So I'll just uh, wrap it up and stop sharing. Uh, all right. Well, thank you very much for that, uh, Professor Kaufman. Thanks. There's a lot of information there, and it's going to take a bit <laughs> of to, uh, to digest it all. If you have um, the slide deck and you're willing to send it to me, I can distribute that to our sure. audience here. It would be very useful to uh, to go back and look at that several times. I do have three prepared questions for you before we get to the general Q&A, and I'm just going to try and put them up on screen now. I'll, I'll do them all at once. Well, it would be best probably to um, to uh, take them one at a time. Can you see the same deck I had from before? Yeah. Okay, I'm going to scroll back down to where I left off. And there are the questions that I have. Um, and, and so we're obviously pitted against the uh, elites, you know, and, and this, the populist idea sets this dichotomy up where there's two two groups in competition. You know, the elitism really can be defined, I think, as, uh, as corporatism. And, uh, it's not uh, democratic. It's elitist in its nature. 
and it's pretty much got its hooks into our parliamentary system here in Canada. And and so this idea of populism as a as a bulwark or as a as a countermeasure against this uh, this elite takeover, um, they don't like that obviously, and you know they try to denigrate the term in the public mind. And so the question becomes, how do we deal with that word itself? Should we embrace it? Should we downplay it? Should we not use it at all? And the other two questions we'll get to later. Yeah, good question. I mean, obviously it's used to, as a slur. Um, you know, I would tend to sort of reply and say that um, this is about widening democracy. And... Um, the other side are acting in bad faith by trying to sort of um, take issues off the table by smearing people who want to widen democracy as populist. And and actually, the other thing, of course, is if you look at the history of political parties, most of them started off as populist challenges. They bring new perspectives to the existing order. It can come from the left uh, in the form of even the Labour Party and the welfare state and all of that began as a, a workers' populist movement or from the right equally issues that are uh, being ignored by the existing elite. It's perfectly legitimate in a democracy to bring those in if mainstream par parties are not addressing those issues. The other thing, of course, is that mainstream parties use populist language all the time, the Canadian people, for example. And so, again, it's all... It's a bit of a game, a rhetorical game, but yeah, I'd say the, the way to turn that on his head is to just say we're widening democracy and you're in a dishonest way calling that populism to discredit it. Widening democracy, that's a good, that's a good angle. Yeah. And so, you know, I've followed the uh, development, you know, across the European continent of these populist parties for decades, you know, hopefully with my fingers crossed <laughs> and, and, uh, and so we're, you know, I'm wondering if we're looking at the same timeline here or if there's things we can do to accelerate the process here. Because we do have a bit of a different circumstance here in uh, in Canada and, and also globally with, uh, you know, the pace with which these globalists are implementing change. So what's our prospect? Well, I think the prospects are very good. Uh, the reason I say that is immigration, as I said, is core to the success of all uh, populist parties. And... Now, of course, it's going to be very hard to get in when you still have what looks to voters like a viable conservative mainstream alternative that has a much better shot at getting in. So I think it's unrealistic to expect success until the conservative party gets in and doesn't deliver on the issues its voters think it's going to deliver on. It's then vulnerable. The UKIP emerges when the conservatives under Cameron um say they're going to do something about immigration and aren't able to do anything about immigration. That was the opening that allowed UKIP to come in on 13%. Right now, uh, the Conservative Party in Britain said they were going to, they suggested they were going to lower immigration. They've done the opposite. They're paying a huge price for that. And I think there's now an opening for uh, reform or one of the populist parties to come in on double digits. Uh, now, so what I would say is it's, it's tough because, you know, clearly you want to increase your numbers now. And I think there are probably things you could do. Uh, but the real opportunity is going to come when the conservatives get in and don't and, and let down betray their voters because their voters are not the voters they were even in 2013 and 2011. They're not just low tax 
free market types. It's people who want lower immigration, who want to push back on more cultural security. And they're not delivering that the way, in a way, the, the Ford government in Ontario has not delivered uh, that either. Um, and, and it could be also the schools issue, the, the pushing back on wokeness uh, as well. Now, what I would say, though, is that the PPC probably as a brand needs to really be identified as you are the ones that are going to resist mass immigration, globalism. Um, you're the ones going to resist wokeism and call it out. And you're, you're sticking up for Canada in a way the other parties won't. And then I think when your moment comes, which would probably be under a conservative government, then the, the aim is really probably to do what UKIP did, which is, you know, UKIP didn't got one seat, but it hugely changed the conversation. It secured a referendum on the EU out of the government. Um, and so what you're trying to do is push, um, probably push the conservatives. I mean, it, you, obviously it could be a reform party style takeover, you know, and suddenly the Tories are reduced to nothing, but probably it'll be as in Britain, uh, you're going to push the mainstream parties onto your terrain so that they are going to take the cultural issues much more seriously than they're doing now. That, that would be what's happened in Europe as well. So the populist right parties did very well that, that forces like the Swedish center-right, suddenly had to start talking about immigration and reducing numbers. Before that, they were just scared of being called a racist in the media, and they didn't say anything or do anything. So that's kind of what I would think could be a trajectory um, on that one. Great. Um, before I get to the third question here, I just want to make a note of the fact that in one of your slides, you had the peak immigration into the whole continent of Europe as being somewhere between 1 and 2 million, likely at the peak of the Syrian uh, conflict. And, you know, if we believe Bill Trufts, Tufts, and I certainly do, he's saying that the, the immigration into Canada this year will be on pace, be uh, 1.5 million. So the, the, the level of the, uh, the magnitude of the issue here is actually as severe as the entire continent of Europe was during the Syrian war matter. So I, I think uh, we're going to see this thing come quite quickly. Um, that's just a comment. And then, of course, I was doing some research on, on this stuff, and I came across some UN uh, literature that goes to great pains to try and, and uh, you know, legitimize cultural genocide, which is the point of my third question here. And, you know, these guys always try and get out ahead of us, you know, by denigrating the term um, populism, by, the, you know, normalizing it. And they've got some language in their literature that says that cultural genocide is quite acceptable. So do you have any comments on that? So who who has that language now? In the UN, you're saying? or uh... Yeah, it's the UN. It's, it's uh, there's, a, there's a paper on it that kind of explains this. You know, prohibition against yeah. genocide. You'll see it in the third item here. You, actually, are, are you talking about with respect to the trying to call the indigenous things, the residential schools, a, a cultural genocide? Is that what you're you're driving no, at? The, no, the or, the paper. I'll, I'll dig it back out again, yeah. but it talks about it in uh, you know as a as a classification separate from like ordinary genocide, and uh, you know it, it makes a provision mm. to allow that to go on. Right? Of course, that's yeah. Kind of, I mean, I I I think the thing is. 
What I would say is, I mean, I think with these external uh, international bodies like the UN or the EU, I mean, my view is they actually don't matter that much. Um, That you know, if you look at the UN conventions on migration, most UN countries just ignore all of these things. Uh, It's really up to the domestic courts and the domestic activists to use this and leverage it. Uh, I actually think the UN and and EU have very little. very little to do with this. This is really kind of a, a, a sort of virus, a, a, a cultural virus at the heart of uh, Western countries, particularly Anglo countries. Um, and it's coming from within. Uh, the elite within Canada, within Australia, within uh, Britain to some extent is really where the... And so it's the elite institutions, whether it be universities, uh, the teachers, colleges, the courts, media, etc., domestically, where, you know, I think this is really where the problem is coming. Okay, just quickly, uh, we did generate uh, some, some, you know, possible headlines. I've added one from you, this cultural security mm-hmm. uh, possible headline is a brilliant one. I think I like it. Other things I've got in there, we can just briefly look at that. I, I put it on screen simply so we can make a record of it in the recording. But these are the ones we kind of generated in our working group. And, uh, you know, we're kind of torn as to, as to which way to go. And your input's going to help quite a bit. So I am going to stop this thing. Um, and let's see here. I can get rid of that. It's like killing the whole stop. Sure. Okay. Now we're back to uh, the normal view. Um, I'd like to open it up for questions, and I think, I think uh, the group is small enough that we're going to allow people to uh, unmute themselves. So I will allow them to unmute themselves. And if you mind uh, raising your hand first, uh, we can take any questions you have in the order that uh, that they're asked. So, do we have any questions for Eric? Nikki, please go ahead. Hello, Eric. Welcome. Um, thank, Hi, you for Nikki. Pres- thank you for that presentation. It was wonderful. It actually filled in a lot of empty gaps that I was worried about. Um, just to kind of give you a heads up, I'm the creative on the group, so okay. I'm developing the marketing for everybody. Okay. So what yeah. you said was very important, and and it's uh, the data and the, uh, the information that I need to be able to focus my marketing campaign on and I think it's going to help all of us actually develop a brilliant um, messaging. <clears throat> you actually answered my major question, which was about um, what was the point, what was the clincher for um, uh, people to vote for Le Pen and and switch the vote? And it was the disappointment in the Conservatives. It was that uh, they just had enough and they gravitated towards the Populist Party. Correct. Yeah, that's absolutely right. It's 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 not getting satisfaction on those cultural security issues. Uh, it's really not about economics and being poor. That's just not. Uh, that's a complete misinterpretation of the data. So it's a deviation, basically. It's what they're blaming it on, but it's not really that. <laughs> yeah, it's it's culturally driven, and um, God, I mean, I'm I'm just trying to say, you know, so for example, one of the most misleading things sometimes you see a map. Right. And you say, oh, all these uh, poor counties in Indiana, they all voted for Trump and all the wealthy places voted for Clinton. Uh, 
but but there's so many problems with that interpretation you know like rural areas people are older there are fewer minorities fewer people with degrees you got to you got to account for all of that and once you account for all of it and you look at individuals and compare apples to apples uh, it really comes down to these kind of uh, views around immigration and culture and psychology well, and a perfect perfect example of that is something that happened recently in the U.S. with Jason Aldean. They're trying to cancel his uh, song that he just released. And it was all about coming from a small town and saying, you know, you, you try that in a small town. It's not going to work. And they labeled it as racist, but it's not really racist. It's it's essentially just him s- stating a fact. You know, this is this is how we are. And this is we protect our own and we're we're a community. But it gets swathed and painted with a, a, a massive brush brush stroke that it's it's kind of like what they're doing with the ppc right they're, they're yeah they, it's a sort of alarmist um catastrophizing technique which is you know if it's we're always one step away from the gin grow south and nazi germany right so they're, they're trying to sort of gin up this this atmosphere of white supremacy you know, stalking the land right as a way of kind of manufacturing consent um and yeah i mean but what's interesting actually in in some of the few studies that have been done you know the studies that sort of say okay here's trump uh, he's a racist versus trump we don't like his policies and then look at how that changes opinion and what you see is there's a, a very noticeable backlash effect when you try and pretend something is racist when it's not so there is a kind of that does mobilize people against you know so the people who are doing this are actually shooting themselves in the foot in a way it does work to some degree right but then it's it's for a whole other set of voters and i think it would be the same with the ppc when the media calls the ppc racist that's backfiring with you know a significant chunk of canadian voters and so if anything that's probably helping but you know clearly there's a fine line right but you want to that's partly the signaling like if you say canadians of all races uh, want less immigration. You're kind of subtly signaling something um, without sort of pandering to the media message. So yeah, um, I don't. I think all if you're in a way, if you're not being called racist, you're not probably challenging where you need to challenge. And it's something now that's uh, you know becoming so routine that it, it it doesn't matter as much. But clearly, you have to kind of make sure the message is kind of. You know, that's why I think a message like, you know, everybody's united against this works better than, uh, you know, just attacking. So I have one more point um, in relation to the Trump part is that he's basically letting the Democrats shoot themselves in the foot. They're actually digging their own grave right now. And he's just pointing out what they're doing and sitting back and laughing because they're literally destroying their own reputation is what they're doing. Um, so going back to the UK and, and, and Europe with Le Pen, um, did, did UKIP actually have a marketing campaign that they actually piggybacked on that populism ride? Was there something that they, that they kind of, or did they just do an attack on the conservatives? Well, it's very domestic. Um, so with, with UKIP, essentially they were, they weren't so much, I mean, they were going after the conservatives, but essentially they were talking about EU. What they did was they linked the immigration issue to the European Union issue. Most voters 
didn't care about the EU. Yes, they knew they issued regulations. They didn't know what it was. They never saw it in their lives. So what UKIP had to do was raise the salience level of the EU as an issue. And so they did that by linking it to immigration, which is an issue voters already care about a lot. And they said, well, if we are in the EU, we can't control our borders. So you care about borders, you have to care about the EU. And that's how they, they gradually in the 2000s increased that, uh, the salience of that issue, which is what drives voting. So you got to get the salience of an issue up in order for it to move voters. Um, and, and that's the key is to somehow get that talked up in people's minds enough. It's almost linking two different issues or several different issues and bringing it to the forefront because a lot of people aren't aware of certain issues and how they affect each other, like housing and immigration and how they're yeah. connected and whatnot. Okay, thank yeah. you. I'm going yeah. to shut up okay. now. <laughs> no, that's fine. I should also say, you know, you can test messages through survey experiments as well. It's perhaps something to, to look at um, rather than focus groups. I think it's more effective, but happy to talk about that. Uh, yeah. So thank Dave uh, Ennis uh, has the question. Can you unmute and go ahead? Yep. Hi, Professor. Uh, thank you so much for this presentation. Uh, very informative. I have a question for you, and it has to do with climate change, because that seems to be the topic du jour. And obviously, Germany is going through uh, some regret of what it has done following green policy. Um, do you believe that talking about climate change in Canada and and saying that yes it's happening but it's not a catastrophe is this a winning strategy when i talk to people in general they they all believe that the carbon tax that we're paying here is justified that we uh, need to be doing more to limit carbon all that sort of thing i'm just wondering uh what your experience is on that topic well okay and here i i you know i guess my view is that there isn't as much mileage in this issue. And one of the reasons I would say that is it, it kind of plugs into the economic left-right dimension. So free market, less regulation, therefore we don't want green taxes, and, and it's a sort of taxation issue. Now, that's an important issue, but I think the Conservative Party is more in that space because you're not likely to get not as likely to get cancelled for challenging. I mean, you are somewhat, but not to the same extent as if you go after immigration and woke. I think that conservatives are more on that terrain. Um, the polling that we've done, certainly here in Britain and across Europe, no populist party has really... Uh, yeah, I, I, I shouldn't say no. In, in, in the Netherlands, the Farmers' Party, to some extent, is an exception to that. But for the most part, that hasn't been the main driver. Uh, for the most part, it's been the cultural issues and i suppose the worry would be if if that becomes the main thing you're identified as or similarly with lockdown again i see it as more of a libertarian issue and across europe no parties none of the populist parties have really gone after that anti-lockdown vote part of the reason is because a lot of populist right voters are older security focused so they're not as driven by this issue. Now, I, the polling in Canada, again, was suggests the big opening is around parties that are willing to go after those very contentious issues, such as immigration, that nobody's willing to touch because they're going to get monstered by the media as a racist. But that's those are really the issues that I think would have the, the greatest market potential. Uh, but it's not to say you can't say anything on these other issues. It's just that 
in deciding what's going to be the central party brand. Um, I don't know. I kind of would lean to the cultural side if the experience of other of, of Trump and of the of the Europeans is is anything to go by. Okay, so so then immigration and cultural uh, culture wars are the the two big uh, pieces of pie to go after. I would say so, and they're the two things the conservatives are weak on, and that I think are you know in the U.S. case now in the culture wars are really playing. Uh, it's gotten so bad in Canada. I think there's a lot more pickup now of these issues. Every every six months, more voters are understanding what's going on in the schools, in the workplace, in the government. Um, and, and also it's trashing the country. No one, you know, people have a national identity. They don't want to see. So in a way, you could say these parties are anti-Canadian and, and you're pro-Canadian. Even something as basic to actually own Canadian identity for the first time and to say, well, these people are sh- think Canada's shameful. They don't have pride in the country. We do, you know. I mean, these sorts of, I think that the sort of nas- national conservatism broadly conceived is, is where more of the votes are. All right. Thank you. Eric, can you stay for a few more questions? Yeah, yeah, I can, I can stay. Yeah, I can, I've got another, you know, 15, 20 minutes. That's fine. Yeah. Great. And uh, Evanoff has a question coming up. Hello, Ann. I'm just unmuting. Thank you, Doug. Um, appreciated what you had to say, Eric. Thanks. The topic of immigration is one that has occupied my brain space for some time. I'm a Canadian born and raised here. Wink, wink. <laughs> my great grandparents came at the end of the 1800s from Poland, Austria, Ukraine, and Bulgaria, and really created something out of nothing by working hard. So I do have a loyalty to that history, to that past, and to the fact that many of those immigrants who came to Canada over the last hundred years came with a vision for contributing to this country in a positive way. And when I look at what's happening all over Europe, What I observe is a shift, a huge shift in what has been known as conservative in Canada that has become really more uh, not so much conservative, and I'm talking CPC, becoming more left, more woke. And similarly with Rishi Sunak in Britain, he is a conservative, and my friends who live there consider him to be left woke and broke and speak about him as if he were Justin Trudeau, if you get my drift. And so what I, when I see the Calistanis moving into Surrey, BC, and into Burnaby, and into Brampton, and bringing their cultural wars from Pakistan into Canada, and actually threatening Hindus in Canada, it does make me quite frightened, if I'm quite honest with you, in terms of the future of Canada and what could happen. My friends in Manchester talk about radical Islamics who are taking over their country. So there is that element of radicalism that is part of the immigration package, and I'm not exactly sure how PPC can be open and honest about the division that is occurring here because of immigration and because of a disparate culture 
in terms of what we value, what we believe. The immigrants that I heard about in my family brought something positive, were accepting and didn't want to undermine one another. They were accepting. That's no longer the case in Canada. If you speak up, you're a white supremacist, you're a racist, you're far right. Get the hell out of here. We don't care if you were born here. Hmm. Do you have any comments about that dilemma? It's real. Yeah. I mean, I think, I guess my uh, thinking on this is, you know, I think we have to raise, I mean, the cultural is core to immigration attitudes in Europe and also in, in, in North America. I mean, there's two things there. I mean, one is the trashing of um, European Canadians as so-called settlers, which is happening in critical race theory in schools, increasingly in government as well. That's one prong of this, is sort of pushing back on that and saying, um, no, we actually want to uh, honor the hard work of people who uh, came to this country, and we're not just going to trash them as a bunch of racists. And so part of that is, 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 is honoring the national memory and the memory of European settlement. Um, but the other, of course, is this question of immigration itself. Uh, I mean, you know, there are going to be some, you know, problem individuals and radical Muslims and so on. But I think that's, to my mind, for me anyway, it's not the major issue. I mean, the major issue is the scale of the change, especially compounded year after year after year, is going to radically change the nature of the country. Um, now, of course, the left will say, well, you must be a bigot and a xenophobe for saying that. But actually, what this is doing, what, what they're trying to do is sort of collapse shades of gray issue, slower, faster, into a black and white issue. You're open or you're closed. And if you're not Mass pro mass immigration, you're closed. Instead of saying, "No, I'm a little bit in the lighter gray end and less in the darker gray end," um, and so part of the the job of the PPC is to sort of open up uh, space for saying, "No, we want it slower." We didn't say zero. You know, of course, they're always going to try and say, "Oh, well, you're going to start sending people back," and it's just it's utter alarmist nonsense that you would never accept for any other issue. But they've been getting away with it. As far as I can remember, I grew up, of course, in Canada in the 70s and 80s. But as far back as I can remember, this has always been a sacred cow. Um, so part of a, it is opening up a conversation around speed and pace of change. It is acceptable to want slower change. Now, of course, there's also these other issues around uh, putting pressure on public services and congestion in cities and house prices. And all of that is important. And the other thing is this, this complete myth about immigration as any kind of solution to the aging problem, which is just any demographer will tell you is just nonsense. And that, again, that's a myth that has not been busted. And again, I think that's a sort of open, open goal, really, because immigrants age, they then need to be paid for. You've got to bring in more immigrants. Uh, it's like a Ponzi scheme. It's just kicking the can down the road. Yeah, yeah that's, that's, that's interesting. Um, the, and I'll finish up quickly, Doug. Vetting, the issue of vetting uh, of immigrants, that seems to have fallen by the wayside in Canada, that the process is no longer what it was even 10 years ago. And often people under the supervision of Sean Fraser, for example, can get a, a piece of paper in another country, fly to Canada and have a Canadian ID on them. That is happening. It's real. So there, there seems to be no control 
over that process like there used to be. Fifteen years ago, if immigrants came here, they had to have the potential of a job, experience, qualifications, to some degree a reference, and a resume, references and resume. That no longer seems to be a significant part of the vetting process anymore. How can PPC, and I want to come back to the vocabulary, the wording, the title, how can PPC frame this issue to provide an alternative option that will, and I hate to say this because the minute you say it, you are a MAGA, make Canada great again, that 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 whole notion of what we can do to put Canada first, let's put it that way, also seems to be slurred and defamed and denigrated by the far left woke. And when I say that, I'm including CPC in Canada because they definitely have become a subsidiary of the Liberal Party as far as I can see, just like Jagmeet Singh in the NDP who supports Khalistani terrorists in Canada and he actually props up the Liberal government and empowers them to continue with a 20% minority, believe it or not. <laughs> I'll drop it there. Well, I, yeah. Anything I mean, that you I, have would be great for us. Yeah, I think that, you, you know, that message at the slide I had earlier about just saying that Canadians of all backgrounds, diverse backgrounds, want less immigration, right? So you're addressing, in that, in that messaging, you're addressing any of these racism charges, which, of course, we know they're spurious anyway, but uh, that's, I think, a good way, because actually in the data... You know, a lot of minorities, they, they came to Canada at a certain point in time. They don't want to see that change too rapidly either. Um, and so I think that's just the wing, the strongest argument on that. Um, and, you know, I, I think that the conservatives, you, you see, they may be uh, right wing on economics, but, you know, it's like woke corporations. I mean, companies, they're willing, they want cheap labor. They're willing to pay their workers very little. Uh, you know, they want to offshore jobs, etc. Uh, but on the other hand, they're very woke on cultural matters. Uh, and I think the Conservative Party is trying to pull off something similar to uh, Ford in Ontario, where it's only about, you know, pleasing donors and developers and big business and people who want cheaper labor. So economically, it's to the right, but culturally, it's to the left. So I think that's the, the common ground and immigration definitely falls uh, into that cultural left basket. But of course, it's also supported by big business who want cheaper, cheaper workers. That's the same in Britain. And Sunak, he's not, he's not as bad in some way. I mean, he's, he's somewhat, he's not, not where I'd like him to be, but actually, oddly, he's even slightly better than Boris Johnson and, and Liz Truss, who are even worse, I would say. Um, <laughs> Good. Well, thank you once again. Appreciate your input and, getting uh, a more international perspective on Thanks. how do these pieces connect, what are the links, even though the vocabulary and the labels do differ from time to time. Thanks. Okay, uh, Scott, uh, could you go with your question, please? Absolutely. Hi, Eric. Thank you for your time today and your presentation. It, uh, there's a lot of good information there, and particularly I found it interesting that uh, 52% of the Green Party is actually opposed <laughs> to these high immigration numbers. And uh, furthermore, I find it interesting that they're not slandered as being racist. 
my <laughs> conservative party for that being the case. That's I think something that's happened to there. But uh, my question, I guess, my I guess I'd like your thoughts on this is uh, you briefly sort of touched on it there at the tail of the last question, but there's a, in terms of addressing immigration, and I largely agree that both on this issue and many others, we're not really going to win big until the conservatives get in power and then they fail. But there is one angle to this aspect of immigration I'd like your opinion on is there's a fairly popular sentiment amongst immigrants themselves who are opposed to these open borders and mass migration and large like immigration numbers. So I think that would be a very strong angle for us to, to utilize, not just to address the, the, the issue of immigration, because like I say, it's kind of a losing battle right now at this point in time. But I think it would help a lot in tampering down the uh, the narrative and smearing of us being a racist party. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, absolutely. And and the um, polling numbers, the survey data, every survey I've ever seen shows, you know, non-white Canadians are as or more restrictionist than white Canadians. You look at what's happened with Hispanics in the U.S. on the issues of the, around the border, uh, and the shift to Trump now that's occurred there, um, equally, you know, that's increasingly recognized. It's increasingly recognized that Hispanic voters want more border control and, um, and, and lower immigration. So I think that's again the direction that I would see as the most fruitful one is to say, you know, Canadians of all backgrounds want lower numbers. Now, the other thing I, I should mention is it's not to say that the housing price issue is not a fertile one and the, uh, congestion issues and fertile ones. So New Zealand's last election, oddly enough, people think of Jacinda Ardern as a kind of Trudeau, but actually uh, Ardern ran, so she's from a left-wing party, they ran on an immigration reduction platform to go from 80 to 40,000. The populist party there wanted 10 to 20,000 and came into coalition. So Winston Peters came into coalition with Ardern uh, but the, the the fact that that did very well as an election issue, I think in a country that's in some ways quite similar, um, I think shows that that, that could be the, the scaffolding, right? So if you're talking about pressure on housing, house prices, congestion in cities, then you are, it's going to be pretty hard for them to argue back. So that seemed to work in New Zealand. Um, and so I think that's just something else amongst these practical problems caused by immigration. But yeah, I'd agree with you there. Well, thank you very much. Okay, next question goes to William, who runs our Midway Project. It's another think tank down in Ontario. Thank you, Doug. And uh, thank you, uh, Professor Kaufman, for uh coming on the group here today. It's been a fantastic uh, conversation and great information. And we love having uh, people like yourself come on and share different ideas. But I, I wanted to reinforce something that you that you did during your presentation that I think is actually very valuable in, as we're starting to message a little bit coming back. And what one thing you put up was that, that image of that man who now wanted to be considered a woman to go to a woman's prison. And what you did, I think, is very important as far as what we're trying to do is is image what they're actually asking for. One thing I've noticed when I'm talking to different sides of things, because I work in, in, in a different areas full of people that love to make themselves look good, is they will chase they will chase ideas that they get to feel good about what they're talking about, even if they're antiquated. But anything real, they'll avoid like crazy. For instance, the, uh, the Sound of Freedom video, uh, movie that's come out. Um, I'm surrounded by a lot of people like to talk about uh, the... Uh, 
about Every Child Matters, Black Lives Matter, and everything, and they'll pat themselves on the back all day about all the things that they'll support, including immigration, largely because they don't have to they don't have to suffer the consequence of it, but they get to look good in trying to support it. So one of the ways to defeat them is show them exactly what the consequences of what they're actually supporting. And it, it takes that, it takes that uh, shine off their apple. They, they can't feather their, their nest anymore with an idea that is so visually apparent that's such a horrible idea. But where we run into our problem is just saying end mass immigration, it almost sounds like it's isolationist and it makes us look as though we're limiting, we're limiting people to actually come and be a part of what we're doing. That's not exactly what we're doing. I think when we, when we start selling our message saying that Canada's made up of fantastic people that have come from different places of the world at different times of, of, uh, of being part of Canada and they have been able, able to contribute. Our problem is, is we're now entering an era where people can come in, not contribute anything, get to move into our hotels, are not held to the same laws or the same standards, and that's our problem. We want to invite people in. We don't want to have everybody come in and held to a different standard. And I think that some of that conversation, I think, is useful and can be put in some of our, our uh, promotional stuff. It, so this is not, not mass immigration, but responsible immigration. It has a, much more, has a little bit more legs, I think. Anyway, I just wanted to reinforce what you were doing there, and I really appreciate you coming on here today. And I'd love to have you on the Midway Project sometime. I tweeted you in uh, on Twitter, and thank you again for being here. Thanks, Doug, for letting me uh, uh, ask the question. Well, thanks, thanks, William. I, I like that framing the responsible immigration. I think that's really good. Um, I, I think that, alongside this idea that Canadians of all backgrounds want less. So it's clearly not just a race issue, or is it? It's not a race issue, and then also the drawing attention to its connection to problems that people do care about, right? So if they're caring about house prices, uh, if they're caring about congestion, you want to flag that. Uh, well, in order to address this, you need to deal with immigration. Um, so, yeah, I think that's, um, you know, thanks for the kind words. And <laughs> I, I think the the hard thing, of course, for PPC is it's, it's again, you almost need the conservatives to get in and the shine to come off. I, I should say, by the way, you mentioned about the, the uh, rapist going to a, a women's prison, right? So that in Scotland, most of those Scottish National Party voters were, they didn't understand what this was about. So part of it is also people don't understand. They don't understand that critical race theory is actually anti-white racism. Uh, radical gender ideology is kind of anti-female. Uh, you know, you've got anti-male uh, sexism going on. That what you're doing is you're ripping off this velvet glove, this nice oh, Black Lives Matter or anti-fascist or inclusive, gender affirming. These nice words, most people don't understand what they actually mean. It's like the North Korea calls itself the Democratic Republic, right? So you kind of have to. You need something that can cut through the euphemisms that they surround themselves with so no one will really look at what they're doing. And I, I, that's what happened in Scotland with this. these images. They really helped to galvanize the population. And then, then they kind of woke up and said, oh, this is what Nicola Sturgeon's doing. And that's cost her her job eventually. So you have to find a way to cut through with something clear. I mean, Billboard Chris, when he says, you know, I don't call it gender affirming. I call it chemically castrating kids. You know, something that's now you don't necessarily want to do that as PPC, but you have to kind of expose the, these terms that sound good. Anti-racism. No, you're essentially uh, anti-white racism is what you're doing. Um, and so I think just a way of kind of ripping off the glove. 
Yep. Pulled back also, to sorry, just give me one second, Doug. One other thing I'd like to throw at that, which is what you said before, and I'm a firm believer in speaking about unity, coming, bringing people together, and also saying when you're talking about economic and housing housing crisis, to be able to come up and say, you know what, there are, there are immigrants who came here who are suffering the same economic problems that everybody else is. This isn't a black and white issue. This is a Canadian issue, and I'm quite sure it is also an Australian issue and an, and an Ireland issue. Like, this is suffering everybody all at once. And why is it that left keeps making make it a race issue? I think it's them they're the racists. Anyway, that's kind of a segue. But I think that's 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 a really good angle. Sorry, I just wanted to finish off. Thanks, Doug. Thanks. So uh, it's a matter of pulling off the mask or pulling back the <laughs> curtain. Next question goes to uh, Payment Asgari. He's our president of our EDA here in West Vancouver, Sunshine Coast. Payment, you there? Yeah, how's my audio coming through? Good. Um, well, first of all, thank you uh, for the great presentation. Uh, secondly, I'm going through a rural area and I dropped out. So if this question has been answered. I apologize. Um, it's sort of, I'm a, I want to ask a devil's advocate kind of question, which is essentially, um, what's the problem with immigration? Like what, it, how do you, how do you square that circle of, you know, resisting too much immigration without coming across as racist because the number one pushback I get is, um, you know, why do you hate immigrants? What's wrong with immigrants? Immigrants are good. Uh, so, so how would you answer that? Thank you. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's a very dishonest framing, isn't it? Um, I would just say, um, you know, it's a slower, faster question. It's not a black and white, open, closed question. You're turning it into a black and white question, right? If you say, uh, if you are opposed to immigration, you must be anti-immigrant. It's a bit, so the only possible position you can have is open borders, because if you want to restrict it all, then that would suggest you're anti-immigrant. Um, so yeah, I think the, the thing about the racist charges, it is so ingrained in the brainwashing of many Canadians through the education system. It's been going for 50 years. It's actually got almost no, you know, it has very little, substance to it i mean even at you know academic political theorists the honest ones not the critical race theorists um something like immigration you know the way a country transacts with the rest of the world is much more like the way a private club deals with potential members it's not the same as a bank choosing not to serve somebody on the basis of race right so it's an associate associational question um and, and it's just astounding to me how this charge has managed to stick. Um, and, and yeah, you're right. I mean, it's, it's again, how do you counter that? I, I try to use the example of accents. Um, so yeah, someone with any accent is an equal Canadian. Uh, does that mean that there's no such thing as a Canadian accent? Uh, does that mean we don't care at all about a critical mass of people? speaking with a certain accent. No. So these two things are compatible. You can be uh, tolerant at the margins of individuals, but still want to conserve a critical mass of characteristics. Uh, and, and that's kind of the, the, the technical term for this is fallacy of composition. So if I, if you, if I say to you, you know, you criticize the medical system, you must be anti-doctor or anti-nurse. Hopefully you'll be able to see right away through that logical fallacy. But somehow with immigration, if you criticize current immigration levels, 
they can get away with saying, oh, you're criticizing immigrants. So what they're doing is committing this, what's called fallacy of composition, moving from the group level down to the individual. It's like, again, if I criticize the military, I must be criticizing individual soldiers. No. If I, um, if I critic, if I say that, um, intact families produce on average, uh, better outcomes, that doesn't mean I'm attacking single mothers. I mean, single mothers are doing the best they can, but, the dishonest person is going to try and say, oh, you want to advocate for intact families. It must mean that you uh, are denigrating single mothers. We have to get better at exposing that use of the fallacy of composition and just coming back at it right away and just saying, are you saying the same thing as, you know, when somebody says, uh, wants to criticize the medical system, does that mean they're criticizing a nurse? No. And likewise, if I want to criticize immigration levels, it doesn't mean I'm criticizing an immigrant. Uh, but that's the game that that is played, unfortunately. And I just think there's no getting away from the charge of it, of being called a racist. I mean, that is all populist parties and movements have been called it and called it and called it. And eventually it just wears and it, it just loses its power. Um, and it, and the sort of boundaries of acceptable speech shift. So in Sweden, you know, if you mentioned immigration levels, you were a racist attacked in the press. Sweden Democrats come in 12, 13, 20, 25%. Then the center party says, ah, yeah, we're also going to talk about this. And then everybody else follows. And then the taboo moves, it shifts. And that's kind of the process that Canada hasn't yet gone through, needs to go through like every other, almost every other Western country. It's, yeah. If you haven't been called a racist yet, you're not trying hard <laughs> enough. Yeah. Hey, but uh, last question maybe goes to uh, to Bill Tufts. We can't leave him out. Eric, thanks very much for joining us and uh, your uh, ideas and insights and wisdoms. You know, something that we're going to find very valuable here. I think we are certainly in tumultuous times as the, the times change. You spoke about uh, Sturgeon and Ardern. It's great to see they're both gone. I'm sort of surprised you... Uh, minimize the impact of globalism here in Canada. We go rabid about globalism, Agenda 2030 and the World Economic Forum and all that sort of stuff. Uh, one last uh, kingpin went down with Root in 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 the Netherlands. Let's hope the uh, last uh, standing radical woke left uh, here in Canada, Trudeau, goes down off awfully quick. But uh, we do have a battle here. One of the challenges that we're going to have is just the I think we're going to be in minority governments for probably the next uh, couple or, or several elections, as uh, surprisingly, after 175 years of two-party rule in Canada, just like in the UK. Uh, and one of the things that happened that I saw over in Europe was the populist right uh, come together and form those coalitions in be it Italy or Sweden or, you know, uh, it was nice to see... Uh, and Le Pen sort of uh, emancipate uh, Macron and probably not going to happen in the UK, but uh, another interesting initiative will be Goodwin's, uh, you know, initiative. That's how I sort of touched base with you recently. I saw you sitting there beside him when he was talking about that. That'll be a interesting <laughs> initiative. To walk in <laughs> I know, actually, he's got excellent, uh, you know, thoughts and ideas that uh, I share. You, you don't need to respond to that, but thanks very much for coming uh, to visit, and thank you very much for sharing your time. I know it's taken time away from your uh, your your evening in the, the UK, right. and uh, we, we appreciate it very much. 
Yeah, well, I, I mean, just I would say thanks, Bill, and and uh, you know, keep up the keep up the good work. And I do think the time will come uh, for the PPC because I, I really don't see the conservatives embodying any of this. And these really are the much more important civilizational issues. Um, you know, if we talk about culture war, that's actually that's actually a battle for the defense of, of Western civilization in a way. These are so foundational. Um, and I think it's just a matter of staying the course. And, and I do think that the time for the PPC will come when the conservatives come into office. Now, one thing, the other thing I would say though is uh, people like Mark Ruta and others, um, and, and, uh, Richie Sunak are, are, you know, they're not perfect, but they are much, much better than Trudeau. I mean, again, I would say that, that Trudeau is really off in a class by himself. Maybe Biden is, is moving close to him, but what's happened in Europe is, you know, if you look at this collapse of the Ruta coalition, I mean, Ruta was influenced by Wilders and by the populist right and knew that he couldn't just pursue a kind of open bordersy kind of, st- whereas Trudeau's leaned into wokeness. He's leaned into mass immigration. So these European leaders, the centrists, are actually much more reasonable and measured than someone like Trudeau. And so, and I don't, I think there's, there's an influence of global ideas, but I don't see the, the, these particular forms like the WEF. Yes, they are globalist, but I don't see that as where the ideas are coming from. The ideas are coming from woke radicals and people who think these ideas sound good in Canadian universities and they're being influenced perhaps by progressives in America. But uh, it's really the domestic, I think, that holds the key to this and trying to fight back at the domestic level. Okay, that brings us to a full hour and a half. And I want to sincerely thank uh, Professor Kaufman for his time here today. And whatever we come up with, we'll send a copy your way. If you don't mind sending the slide deck, I will distribute that. And so thank you all for attending. And I'm going to pull the plug here. Thanks, Doug. Thank you. Good luck to your weekend. Thank you.
If you're serious about your podcast, stop recording with Oh, Ken Cheems is here with me, Professor Emeritus Ken Cheems uh, of Birkbeck College London, where I also met you exactly, no, 10 years ago, more than 10 years ago, 10 and a half years ago, to be precise, when I audited for the first time your Nietzsche course while I was a student at King's. And a year later, I took your course for credit. And I got a very good mark, which for some reason uh, prompted you to remember me. And not only remember me, you actually also helped me get a scholarship because you wrote me. Do you remember that? Probably not. But you wrote me a letter of recommendation uh, for Warwick. So, and after the, the, uh, my time at Birkbeck, you invited me to come along to your private Nietzsche seminar, which I think is now has moved to a different location to oh, Ken Cheems is here with me, Professor Emeritus Ken Cheems. Oh, enlightenment. That's really the question whether, um, and you need oh. Ken Cheems is here with me, Professor Emeritus Ken Cheems uh, of Birkbeck College London, where I also met you exactly, no, 10 years ago, more than 10 years ago, 10 and a half years ago, to be precise, when I audited for the first time your Nietzsche course while I was a student at King's. And a year later, I took your course for credit and I got a very good mark, which for some reason... Uh, prompted you to remember me and not only remember me you actually also helped me get a scholarship because you wrote me do you remember that probably not but you wrote me a letter of recommendation uh, for Warwick so and after the the uh, my time at Birkbeck you invited me to come along to your private Nietzsche seminar which I think is now has moved to a different location to King's College yeah and uh, Ken is the editor of the Oxford Handbook to Nietzsche and has worked not only on Nietzsche, you can tell us a bit more if you want and what else you've been working on, but Nietzsche has been your big love for many decades. Um, you can also, <laughs> or not, let's find out. Today we'll be discussing Der Tolle Mensch, the Madman. In Nietzsche's Gay Signs, which is uh, in the third book, section 125. And we're also offering a seminar with Ken, actually teaching the seminar on Nietzsche in September, which is now open for enrollment. So, Ken, you have the floor. Hi. Um, hi to everyone out there who's listening. Uh, yeah, Nietzsche. Um, you know, Nietzsche is very famous for this passage, The Death of God. Uh, well, The Madman, but it's often called The Death of God passage. And, you know, okay, so Nietzsche is an atheist. And you might think, big deal. Yeah, an atheist. And they're a dime a dozen. Right? So what's special about Nietzsche's um, atheism? Plenty of people have been atheism before, an atheist before Nietzsche and plenty have been after. And there have also been plenty of believers. What's special about Nietzsche and his announcement of the death of God is that he's the first one to really kind of profoundly interrogate 
what it means for God to have died. And the whole point about this passage is, it's interesting, it's, it's, it's a crazy man who comes into the marketplace and says, where is God, where is God, I seek God. And the village atheists around, so they just make fun of him. And they say, yeah, well, where is he? Has he gone on a holiday? Has he gone on a voyage? You know, it's a big joke to them. But bit by bit, he presses them in a certain way. He says, who has wiped away the horizon? Who has unchained the earth from its side? And he uses all these very dramatic metaphors. And the point he wants to say is, you don't understand what it means to really lose God. Because what these people are, these village atheists, these are simple people, materialists, you could think of some current day people like uh, Richard Dawkins, yeah. who think, oh, just to lose God, that's to lose that father figure in the sky. It's to give up on the notion of this providential father figure who looks up, looks after us. It's to give up maybe on the notion of an immortal soul. It's to give up on the notion of a heaven. And Nietzsche says, no, when you lose God, it is, it's much, much more than that. To lose God is to lose a whole moral universe. Yeah. And what he's trying to point out is, in his philosophy generally, is that a lot of us have given up on the metaphysics of Christianity. That is, we've given up on the notion of God. We've given up on the notion of an immortal soul. We've given up on the notion of an afterlife. But we still contain and we still continue the morality of God, the morality of Christianity. Okay, so as again, think think of those secular humanists, like people like, um, you know, oh, I've forgotten all those modern atheists. Dawkins comes to mind. There are some AC, other ones. AC Grayling, Hitchens, uh, Anthony Grayling, my old ex colleague, yeah. um, and by Nietzsche's lights, they're still Christians because what Nietzsche says: Look, the core of Christianity is not its metaphysics. The core of Christianity is it, its morality. And what is the core of that morality? There are two things he really points to. He says, the core of Christian morality is the importance of compassion. You know, love your neighbor as you love yourself. And also the importance of truth. You know, Jesus says, I'm the way and the truth and no one gets to the Lord but through me. Right? And he says, look, when you think of enlightenment humanists, Grayling, Dawkins, those people, that's exactly their values. They care about knowledge. They care about truth. They think the truth will set you free. Free. They think that through the truth we can gain gain scientific knowledge. That scientific knowledge can be used to ameliorate suffering. But that shows they're still under the sway of the value of compassion. So by yeah. Nietzsche's lights, they are Christians. And you've got to think about this yourself. And this is a deep point Nietzsche raises. What is the core of a religion? Is it its metaphysics about what it says exists or doesn't exist, or is it the evaluative universe, the evaluative space, the moral domain that it creates for you? And Nietzsche wants to claim it's the moral space that is essential for Christianity. One way to think of it is to say all that story about God, about Jesus, that's just stories we, you know, we tell kids to get them into that moral domain. But it's the moral domains that's the core. So these village atheists, yeah. the ones who you know, laugh and say has God gone on a voyage as he emigrated, they've given up on the metaphysics and they think they're sophisticated moderns but they've continued the morality of Christianity because they still care about compassion and they think truth is an ultimate value. And one of the things that Nietzsche diagnoses so nicely about modernity, he says, he says, talking about the death of God, he says, the light from distance time, yeah. sorry, the light from distant stars takes time to reach us. What he means by that is, look, these people have participate in the death of God, but the message hasn't really got to them. And the message is that once you've given up on the metaphysics of Christianity, 
You cannot stop questioning the morality. Like you could say, exactly, why should I care about my neighbor? And even more, why should I care about truth? If you believed in God, you had a reason. Well, that's what God told you to do. God said you need to care about your neighbor. You need to be compassionate towards your neighbor. You need to love your neighbor. You need to care about me. You need to care about the truth. But if you don't have those metaphysics, where is this moral imperative that you have to care about your neighbor? Where is this moral imperative that you have to care about truth? So what Nietzsche says is, he says, bit by bit, it's going to dawn on the modern people yeah. that that morality is not compulsory. People start saying, yeah, why should I care about my neighbor? And yet God told us to, hey, he doesn't exist. Why should I care about the truth? Right. And then he said the next step that happened when you really appreciate the death of God is what he calls nihilism. And yeah. nihilism at first take, there are different versions of nihilism in Nietzsche, but the most important one for our purposes is the idea is there are no ultimate values. And he says that is what's going to happen to Europe. He predicts, he says, nihilism, that is the history of Europe for the next 200 years. Yeah. Okay, I'll stop there in case you've got some questions. Johannes, you want to jump in? Well, I just I wanted to stress that you did uh, in, at least imply that Richard Dawkins and others are um, village materialists or whatever you call them. So that's quite... Village atheists? Yeah, they're all material. But the main thing is that by, from Nietzsche's lights, they're Christians. They're Christians. Yeah. The funny thing is they see themselves as atheists. But Nietzsche says, look, because you still value compassion, because you put an overriding emphasis on the value of truth, 